0: Welcome to Bitcoin ETC, your monthly pass to eToro's Crypto Spotlight, where we delve into the realm of prominent and well-rooted crypto trends that truly matter. I'm Anthony Pompliana, also known as Pomp, alongside Will Clemente, my partner at Reflexivity Research, and we're here to ensure you stay ahead of what truly counts. So buckle up and let's go. Alright guys, Bang Bang, I'm here with Will. Uh, super excited to talk about Bitcoin in the crypto market. Uh, Will, maybe we just start with the halving. We now are coming up on it. It's supposed to happen in April of 2024. As we get closer, people start to start wondering, you know, is it going to matter for price or does it not matter at all?
1: Yeah, for sure. It's a very exciting uh, you know event that takes place roughly every four years for Bitcoin. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, the halving is when the rate of supply issuance gets cut in half for the Bitcoin network uh, right now. Uh, there's 900 Bitcoin that are introduced into circulation roughly every day. uh, Whenever the next halving takes place, which is estimated to be around March or April of next year, this will get cut in half uh, and will then mean that there's going to be 450 Bitcoin uh, that are introduced into circulation roughly every day. Um, And so maybe we can put this chart up on the screen, but um, when you kind of overlay the halvings relative to Bitcoin's price action on kind of a multi-year view, uh, we've seen, and, and it's kind of up for debate whether this is correlation or causation. Um We've seen that the halvings take place before these kind of secular bull runs for Bitcoin. Um And so, you know, there's kind of speculation on is this going to be the thing that drives Bitcoin's price action? Uh, that's kind of up, uh, to, you know, yet to be seen. But the one thing that is for certain is that after this upcoming having on a stock-to-flow ratio basis, so not to be confused with uh, the popular stock-to-flow model that was created by Plan B, uh, the stock-to-flow ratio is uh, a metric that's been used in commodities for a long time that basically compares the amount of supply uh, for a uh, commodity in circulation relative to uh, the rate of new issuance that's coming onto the market. Uh, when you look at that metric, Bitcoin's stock-to-flow ratio will be greater than that of gold after this upcoming halving. And so I think this is an interesting kind of talking point for uh, pundits around Bitcoin and potentially people looking to uh, kind of dip their toes in the asset to say, okay. On a quantifiable basis, Bitcoin is now more scarce than gold.
0: Now, when we see um, kind of these halvings occur, uh, we know that what's happened in the past. How are you thinking about the upcoming halving? Is it just kind of more of the same, or do you expect to pay attention to some maybe nuances of this specific halving?
1: Sure. It's interesting when we look at uh, the amount of uh, rate of kind of change. So if we look at the 90 day change in issuance relative to of the ongoing rate of issuance and again maybe we can put this chart on the screen as well uh, we can see what's basically the kind of this impulse or, or um, this term has been thrown around a lot but "quote supply shock basically showing the uh you know kind of having of, of of the issuance relative to the amount of uh, circulating supply uh, but when we compare this to uh, the overall circulating supply so when we compare the 90-day change in issuance to the overall circulating supply um, we can see that this is actually a diminished Kind of impulse um, relative to the overall amount of, of supply on the market and so what does all that mean um, it means that you know although the supply halvings are important um, they have kind of a, dimin- a diminishing effect relative to uh, the overall circulating supply of bitcoin um, so perhaps this halving will be less impactful relative to the one that took place in 2020 um, 2016 and 2012. Uh, with that being said though i think it's also interesting to look at uh, what we like to talk about is uh, Bitcoin supply illiquidity, basically meaning um, we can look at on-chain the amount of Bitcoin that hasn't moved over a set period of time. And what we can see is that 88% of supply hasn't moved in at least three months. Uh, and actually uh, the long-term holder supply of Bitcoin just uh, reached a new all-time high today, over 76%, meaning that more than three out of every four Bitcoin are held by long-term holders. And so Although relative to circulating supply, the halvings are having a diminishing effect. When you also look at what's going on kind of underneath the surface with how tight uh, how tightly Bitcoin is being held, perhaps that uh, means that you know this the supply your kind of diminishing effect of of, of the supply having um, maybe maybe isn't as diminished as I kind of describes when just comparing it to circulating supply. So what's
0: interesting to me about this is you have this highly highly illiquid market you just mentioned 76 percent kind of long-term holders right i think you've said previously 88 percent or so of all bitcoin um has not moved in the last three months um and so when you have this high illiquidity normally if there was an increase in demand that would be a catalyst and so price would have to move up. What we're talking about here, though, is we're closing in on this halving uh, period where that should also make it much more scarce of an asset. So it's not just the illiquidity in the circulating supply, but then you're going to get this 50% drop in the incoming daily supply. And so have we ever seen an asset or Bitcoin get this illiquid? Like to me, it almost feels like this is very, very rare. And so when and if there is this catalyst, uh, you know, it should lead to some pretty reflexive uh, price movement.
1: Yeah, I think you were pretty spot on in, in what you just described. You know, typically what we see is that uh, Bitcoin supply becomes more tightly held throughout the bear market, as kind of longer term holders or, uh, you know, more savvy market participants kind of, uh accumulate into weakness and then we see that long-term holder supply uh, or however you want to measure it looking at hodl waves or, or different type of metrics that are basically looking at the amount of supply that hasn't moved over a certain period of time uh, we see that draw down into strength so basically uh, more savvy market participants accumulate into weakness and then distribute into strength and we can see that in the data um, whether the kind of current rate uh, again the long-term holder supply relative to circulating supply basically the percentage of, of circulating supply held by long-term holders is at all time highs right now, um, whether on a percentage basis we've seen that in other commodities is, is um, you know kind of difficult to say because we don't have the granularity to, to look at this um, in other asset classes. We're only able to look at uh, this granularity in, in Bitcoin because of the nature of Bitcoin's blockchain uh, being transparent. So that in itself is difficult to say, um, but one thing I would add on is, is uh, the kind of illiquidity goes both ways. So uh, we actually saw there was a pretty high amount of quote-unquote uh, Ill- supply illiquidity for Bitcoin towards the back half of 2021 into 2022, uh, but it goes both ways, meaning that uh, the amount of supply that is not trading uh, being very high means that there's a low float. And so that just translates to exacerbated volatility in both directions. And so I would argue that uh, the supply illiquidity of Bitcoin exacerbated Kind of the move down that we saw throughout 2022 from 70,000 to 15,000, but the back end of that, uh, if you do have any uh, kind of spark of demand, it can get uh, you know pretty wild to the to the upside as well. And we can see um, a move just as sharp as we saw downwards in 2022 uh, to the upside. Um, And so while the supply being tightly held doesn't necessarily alone translate to higher prices, if you're under the assumption that uh, the upcoming supply having paired with ETF or some type of kind of, um, you know, um, inflection point in the broader kind of macro liquidity cycle is going to drive more demand for Bitcoin. Uh, you could see some pretty aggressive price action to the upside, uh, again, given the amount of kind of low float that we're seeing in, in terms of looking at the on-chain data right now.
0: So when we think about the demand side of all of this, obviously the Bitcoin halving, um is something that is on people's mind. The Bitcoin spot ETF is something that also uh, is out there and likely to get approved at some point. Um, there's currency debasement and just the natural, I think, interest and persistent bid of people who are saying, hey, look, I think that the dollar is going to continue to not do so hot and I want to own another asset. What else should we be thinking about in terms of demand when it comes to the supply demand equation?
1: Yeah, I think you hit on all the kind of Main points, frankly, I think when you kind of look at uh, the fiscal situation in the United States, um, uh, our interest payments are now 7% of total GDP, and that's set to just continue to rise. Uh, Stanley Miller and PTJ, or Paul Tudor Jones, are two of the uh, most famous kind of world renowned macro investors recently, did a panel on uh, Robinhood uh, about a month ago, and Stanley Miller basically said, we're spending like drunken, uh, drunken, drunken sailors, right? So, Uh, the united states continues to basically spend recklessly and the only way that we can fund this spending uh, is by continuing to issue more debt so you can think of this as an individual basically um, taking out a ton of credit card debt while their rate of income is not keeping up with the amount of debt that they're taking out uh, through their credit card and then they're taking out new credit cards to pay off the old credit card debt it's it's insanity uh, but you're only able to do this when you have the reserve currency that the united states does have Um, And so we look at, you know, debt to GDP. We look at the fiscal situation in the United States. um, It's really just math that um, the United States, first of all, is not going to default. We're not going to see austerity, meaning that we're going to slow spending because the political incentive to do so is just not there. Politicians want to be liked. And so to be liked, they need to continue to spend money. Uh, And so all things lead to uh, the only viable option that, you know, I think is is likely in a lot of Bitcoiners. Uh, think is likely, which is that they're going to continue to issue more debt. And ultimately, uh, how do they pay off that debt? They have to debase the currency. Uh, and so if you think about it like this, the United States, you know, issues debt at call it 5% uh, interest rate. They can either, um, you know, see economic activity that's going to, you know, increase their income to be able to pay that off. Or they can just debase the currency by 5%, pay back the amount uh, in dollar terms, aka uh, nominal terms, but they're not paying it back in real terms. And so um, this is kind of what we're set to see over, you know, a decade plus time horizon and and why uh, I think there's a bullish case for Bitcoin as well as other hard assets, um, you know, other commodities like gold, for example. Um, But I think a lot of those flows will go to Bitcoin because it's a much more asymmetric bet relative to other commodities and also has superior monetary properties relative to something like gold. Uh, We look at the transportability, um, you know, the divisibility. Um, the verifiability of supply, all these types of things. You know, you want to move uh, a billion dollars of gold. It's going to be very difficult to do so and very costly to do so. You can, you know, move a billion dollars of Bitcoin instantly across the world um, in in one transaction at a very low cost. And so I think there's a ton of reasons why we'll likely see some of those flows into hard assets uh, translate into uh, inflows to BTC. Uh, And I think the ETF is ultimately just an accelerant of that uh, it just basically allows capital to get into the asset uh, more efficiently uh, and, and in a quicker manner, basically capital can move through a super highway as opposed to perhaps like a dirt road uh, as it's had to you know kind of find uh, ways to get into the asset in the past. Um, you know, from a compliance regulatory standpoint, it's been difficult for some entities to get capital uh, into BTC in a, in a compliant uh, fashion. And so I think the ETF unlocks a lot of that capital to come into the asset. Uh, and then as we mentioned, a minute ago about the supply halving, after this upcoming halving, Bitcoin will be quantifiably more scarce than gold as well. Uh, and then the last thing I think that's worth adding on the ETF front in terms of uh, how it could potentially be a positive catalyst uh, is although the ETF in itself is just a structured product, uh, you have to consider the fact that BlackRock or whatever other issuer is going to basically have this massive sales force that's going to be pushing uh, their their clients and and funds that they're associated with to allocate to BTC uh, through their structured product because they get fees off of the ETF. Um, and so I think all of those things uh, paired with just kind of the broader uh, kind of behavioral cycle that we see crypto go through, which I think is a large driver of the four-year cycle that we've kind of come to know, uh, will potentially translate to more demand for the asset over the next couple of years.
0: Now, when we extrapolate this out and we take a look at something like derivatives, what are we seeing on that front and, and kind of how do you think that plays into, you know, maybe the next six or 12 months?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think there's been a couple of interesting shifts in the derivatives market. Um, one of the most interesting ones is when we look at uh, CME. Um, so this is a United States-based futures exchange. The um, BITO, which is the Bitcoin futures ETF, utilizes uh, CME. This is where a lot of the more U.S.-based, you know, traditionally regulated type of firms trade on as opposed to a Binance or an OKX or some of these offshore derivatives venues uh, that maybe are... Uh, not as uh, um, favorable from a kind of compliance regulatory standpoint. Uh, when we look at the percentage of futures open interest, meaning the total amount of futures contracts, um, when we look at this relative to the percentage of futures open interest made up by Binance, we can see that CME just flipped Binance. And so, what does this kind of indicate from a market structure standpoint? Uh, it shows that there's more US based, uh, kind of regulated US institutions that are participating uh, in the, in the Bitcoin futures market and are driving the activity, um, for Bitcoin and Bitcoin's price discovery relative to some of these offshore venues. So CME again is now uh, the number one futures exchange, uh, by open interest and, and just split finance for the first time. So I think that's really interesting just to kind of, um, get a, get a lens and, and maybe a, a hint at, um, the type of market participants that we're seeing now, uh, kind of dominate the Bitcoin market, especially in, in futures. Um, and perhaps maybe hints at the type of market participant that we're going to see over the next couple of years. Uh, I kind of joked around in a in a post about this on Twitter and said uh, it's kind of bittersweet that we're now going to see uh, maybe more suits than hoodies in the in the Bitcoin market. Um, so that's one thing I think to kind of keep in mind in terms of the type of market participants. Uh, another kind of uh, you know I guess metric to to allude to the same point um, is when we look at. Uh, Bitcoin options open interest. So this just uh, flipped $16 billion for the first time. Um, options are used by, in, in general, uh, more sophisticated type of players um, for you know different uh, option strategies or, or types of bets that they want to put on as well as hedging. Uh, and so I think the, the fact that we've seen options open interest just reach an all-time high of over $16 billion uh, in open interest, again, alludes to the fact that perhaps we're seeing a more sophisticated uh, type of market participant. Uh, in this market. And I guess the last thing I would add on to kind of uh, paint this picture of um, are we starting to see more U.S.-based kind of firms participating in the market is when we look at the uh, trading hour premiums. So one thing you can do is you can look at uh, what's the uh, price difference of Bitcoin during U.S. trading hours relative to European trading hours uh, or Asian trading hours. And what we can see is that uh, the U.S. trading hours have traded at a pretty strong premium uh, relative to the European and APAC uh, trading hours. Uh, and so again, that's another kind of data point uh, to say, okay, who's the kind of type of buyer that we're seeing in this, in this market, right? At the beginning of, of 2021, we saw a lot of retail inflows from, you know, basically people, you know, piling their stimmy checks into meme coins and Dogecoin and SafeMoon and all these types of things. When we kind of try to get a, to paint a picture of what's the type of market participant that we're seeing now, I think it's pretty clear that at least for the time being and whether this is just ETF front running or actually kind of sustained flows that we'll see over the next two years, at least at the moment, we're starting to see a real kind of, I uh, you could say regime shift um, in towards uh, you know, these kind of US-based market participants that are dominating the Bitcoin market.
0: What's so fascinating to me is that, um, you know, when Paul Tudor Jones and Stanley Druckenmiller came out and said that they owned Bitcoin or bought Bitcoin, uh, kind of removed career risk. Now that you've got BlackRock stepping in, it does feel like that's removed career risk uh, and organizational risk for not only uh, U.S.-based large financial organizations, but also uh, those in Asia and elsewhere. And, you know, people, I think, sometimes forget just how much capital. These people have, right? You're you're talking about individuals that usually have thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. Then you get kind of really wealthy people who have millions. Maybe they have kind of you know low tens of millions of dollars. Uh, Then you get corporations. Those corporations usually have you know high tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, But these guys are stepping in, and when they're stepping in, they usually are stepping in with tens of billions of dollars right you know and, and they're really able to kind of move markets in a way that previously uh this market specifically hasn't seen now an area where they are not playing right now but i think there's a lot of people in uh kind of the bitcoin ecosystem are, are interested or at least paying attention to our ordinals talk a little bit about what you're seeing there and, and kind of what um you know your expectation is for that uh, part of the ecosystem over the next you know 12 months or so
1: Yeah, for sure. So, ordinals were essentially um, enabled by this kind of loophole uh, in a Bitcoin software uh, called Taproot, which took place at the back half of 2021. Uh, Essentially, ordinals are inscriptions on the Bitcoin blockchain, so you can inscribe things like text, images, uh, but I think um, there's a couple kind of key nuances that separate ordinals maybe from traditional NFTs. Um, The first is that Bitcoin is the most secure Uh, decentralized open source network that we have on the planet. Um, You know, although I would say some of these other networks are maybe on a spectrum of decentralization, more decentralized than, you know, a traditional centralized database of information. Bitcoin is not even in the same ballpark of any of these other crypto networks in terms of decentralization and and network security. And so I think, you know, when when I kind of think about, okay, I want to inscribe a message for the next 100 years that people generations from now are going to be able to see, and nobody can alter that. uh, I would do it on Bitcoin. I wouldn't do it on any other uh, network. And so that's, that's one piece. Um, And then the other piece is that inscriptions are actually natively on the Bitcoin blockchain. So um, when you have an NFT on another blockchain, it's not actually on the blockchain. You have a token that basically is attributed to an image that is, is, um shown on the database of the front end of a website whenever you you know plug in your wallet to that whereas on bitcoin the text or image uh, is actually natively embedded into the blockchain and so uh, i think that's a that's a pretty big kind of nuanced uh, you know difference and, and interestingly over the last couple of weeks uh, we've seen kind of a resurgence of ordinals so we saw a massive kind of frenzy around ordinals back in may uh, but over the last couple of weeks we've seen uh, ordinals inscriptions and, and the fees that they have generated for the Bitcoin network as a percentage of overall fees uh, getting close to an all-time high of of flipping uh, the percentage that they reached during May. So basically, we're seeing kind of a resurgence of ordinals over the last couple of weeks. Um, what are the implications um, for, for the Bitcoin network and, and the market as well? Um, the, one is we're going to see higher fees because there's just more demand to, to utilize uh, Bitcoin block space. Uh, And so, you know, while of course this isn't great for people trying to utilize, um, you know, Bitcoin for micropayments, uh, this kind of brings me to the second point, which is uh, higher fees are good for miners. Um, And and so uh, as you see higher fees, which benefits miners and and brings them more revenue, you have a higher incentive to mine uh, for more mining activity to take place and and for more people to bring more rigs online uh, to capture that that, uh, revenue through fees. Uh, and so the kind of second order effect of that is that ultimately that's good for Bitcoin holders because more mining activity means more security for the network and that's good for uh, Bitcoin holders themselves. And so um, I guess the kind of conclusion of all of that is, um, while maybe this isn't great for people trying to utilize you know, Bitcoin for buying coffee, uh, ultimately, I think this is good for Bitcoin holders because it brings a greater incentive uh, to secure the network, which is ultimately good for anybody securing their wealth on the network.
0: When we look at other areas of Bitcoin, there's a lot of conversation right now about lightning. Um, what, what is your general take on maybe like big themes people should pay attention to between now and the top of the next bull market? Are there other, you know, um, uh, kind of, uh, uh, stories or aspects that you are really paying attention
1: to? Uh, I think ordinals are probably the the biggest thing. I mean, you know, the, Thing about Bitcoin that it makes it so great is you know a lot of people like to knock Bitcoin because there's quote unquote nothing going on with Bitcoin and and people like to hate on the simplicity of it relative to some of these other uh, smart contract networks. But Bitcoin doing quote unquote nothing is exactly what it's designed to do. Um, so very rarely are there a ton of new you know developments and narratives like maybe you see in the altcoin world and and on some of these smart contract platforms. Uh, but I would say yeah, or- Ordinals are probably the uh, the most exciting a uh, new development to to keep an eye out for. And uh, I think it'll be interesting to see um, the, the continued growth of them relative to some of the traditional NFTs. And then also uh, things like BRC20s, which don't have um, utility in the same way that you, know, you can whatever, you know, stake an ERC20 on ETH or Solana, swap it for this, borrow, lend it, you know, out the token, all these types of things. They're basically just pure speculative vehicles. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see if some of the, uh, quote-unquote meme, meme, uh, meme coin flow uh, comes into these BRC20s as opposed to the uh, traditional ERC20 tokens.
0: That makes a ton of sense to me. What um, Where should we send people to find out more about Reflexivity or uh, read any of the great research that the team's putting out?
1: For sure. You can check us out at reflexivityresearch.com. Oh, we've got 25 to 30 uh, free long-form deep dive reports. These are very deep dive. Uh, these are very long-form uh, deep dive reports into fundamental developments around uh, different crypto uh smart contract platforms as well as bitcoin of course Uh, we cover everything from fundamental analysis to derivatives uh to market structure and kind of everything in between uh so be sure to check out some of the free reports on there uh and then we also have a twitter account it's reflexivity res all right man we'll do it again next month all right thanks
0: anthony you've been listening to digest and invest by etoro for more information use etoro.com